0: ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program
1: providing independent media coverage
0: of environmental and ecological studies
2: with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events
0: in order to foster open discussion
2: of human relationships with nature and the earth
0: and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world.
1: Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers
0: working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana,
1: and financially supported by listeners like you.
3: Good morning and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly.
4: And I'm David Lyman. Duke Energy is releasing records of its Indiana coal ash ponds after being threatened by legal actions from environmental groups. According to a statement issued by Wabash Riverkeeper, the Waterkeeper Alliance, and the Hoosier Environmental Council, the dump sites contain hazardous amounts of chemicals that can cause brain damage and cancer. Duke Energy previously refused requests to release the information. The coal ash pond records were reportedly released only after Earth Justice, a nonprofit environmental law firm representing the three environmental groups, threatened to take the energy company to court. Peter Harrison, a staff attorney with the Waterkeeper Alliance, says these coal ash ponds are a disaster waiting to happen.
2: These facilities where Duke Energy and other utilities uh, tend to store their toxic waste are really just holes in the ground. So this is millions and millions of tons of toxic industrial waste, the coal ash from these old coal-fired power plants, sitting in pits held back only by dams made of dirt.
4: Coal ash ponds serve as the disposal areas for the byproducts of coal burning plants. Leaks from ponds have caused environmental incidents across the country and have resulted in several lawsuits.
2: Most notable is probably the 2008 uh, spill in Kingston, Tennessee, uh, where more than a billion gallons of sludge cascaded out of a, an 84-acre uh, coal ash pond that's really very similar to, to the ponds we see across Indiana. And that spill uh, buried houses in up to six feet of coal ash.
4: The records for the Indiana sites include maps and details of over a dozen different ash ponds across four counties, Vigo, Gibson, Floyd, and Vermilion. Indiana is home to over 80 coal ash ponds.
3: The U.S. Forest Service will be conducting controlled burns in the Hoosier National Forest. According to a press release issued this afternoon, the burns will take place in Perry, Crawford, Orange, and Brown counties. Forest Service staff say wetter and windless conditions will determine when they set the blazes. Brown County is expected to receive two burns, totaling up to 222 acres of mixed grass and woodlands near Spurgeon's Corner. Perry County is expected to have over 2,000 acres burned. The Forest Service says the burns will close areas of Hoosier National Forest up to several days after the burns are lit. Hoosier National Forest staff were unavailable for comment.
4: The Indiana State Legislature is banning the use of rifles for deer hunting on public land. Indiana House Enrolled Act 1415 addresses several issues with regards to state and federal resources management, but the most notable among those is the prohibition of deer hunting. The Act states that while certain stipulations were shared between hunting on public and private land, hunting on public, that means state-owned or federally administered property, is now illegal. Regulations about the length of rifles used and what cartridges are allowed on private hunting acreage still apply, including that rifle barrels be at least 16 inches in length and that ammunition be over 1 inch long and no longer than 3 inches. House Enrolled Act 1415 prohibits hunting on state and federal land. It was authored by Republican House member Sean Eberhardt of Indiana District 57, which includes Shelby and Bartholomew counties. Two Utah Republican senators, Orrin Hatch and Mike Lee, are out to gut Federal Endangered Species Act protections for so-called intrastate species or plants and animals found only in one U.S. state. The species threatened by the newly proposed bill constitute a majority of the 1,655 species the Act protects. Nine out of ten Americans support the Endangered Species Act and want it either strengthened or left intact by Congress, according to a 2015 poll.
3: The Senator's bill, deceptively called the Native Species Protection Act, attempts to reverse a tenth Circuit Court of Appeals decision earlier this year that affirmed the federal government's authority to protect the Utah prairie dog. In that case, the judge writing for the three-judge panel said that getting rid of protections for intrastate species would undercut the conservation purposes of the Endangered Species Act. U.S. Representative Rob Bishop, also of Utah, was wants to repeal the Endangered Species Act completely. Also this week, the Labor Network for Sustainability has drafted an open letter to U.S. labor leaders and is asking union members and their families to sign on to it.
4: This letter urges labor leaders to take bold action to address the climate crisis with solutions that protect our planet and our people. It tells labor leaders, quote, Don't drop the ball. Take a strong stand on climate change, unquote. Specifically, the letter asked labor leaders to take a strong stand for, one, a rapid transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy, two, massive rebuilding of energy and transportation infrastructure in support of that transformation, and three, a just transition for workers and communities directly affected by climate change and the transition to renewable energy including income support, retraining, retirement security, and the creation of quality living wage union-protected jobs in infrastructure, energy efficiency, and clean energy. General Motors says the energy needs of seven manufacturing facilities in Ohio and Indiana will soon be completely met by renewable energy. The automaker is purchasing 200 megawatts of energy produced by wind farms in Ohio and Illinois. The turbines will come online in late 2018. GM announced last year that it plans to have 100% of its global energy needs met by renewable means by 2050. It says it will reach 20% when the Midwestern Wind Energy Initiative goes into effect.
3: Public opposition to fracking has led the Scottish government to ban it. The government found little economic justification for fracking. Scotland joined Wales in its ban on fracking, but the practice is going strong in England.
4: Paul Wheelhouse, the Scottish energy minister, said permitting fracking would hurt the government's goal of slashing Scotland's greenhouse gas emissions and harm environmental and public health. Wheelhouse told the Scottish Parliament, quote, we have a moral responsibility to tackle climate change and an economic responsibility to prepare Scotland for new low-carbon opportunities, unquote.
3: The government asked the public to weigh in on fracking in Scotland and over 65,000 responses came in. Some 65% of the responses came from communities in former coal mining areas in central Scotland. Of them, 99% of respondents were against fracking. According to a University of Edinburgh professor, Scottish residents who participated in the poll rejected the claims of short-term financial gain from fracking.
4: Oceanographer Charles Moore discovered the North Pacific Plastic Garbage Patch in 1997, and he recently discovered another one in the South Pacific, that could be more than a million square miles in size. Off the coasts of Chile and Peru, the patch is larger than Mexico, one and a half times larger than Texas, and over twice the size of California. The term patch refers to collections of plastic pollution in oceanic gyres, made up of natural ocean currents. The patches are composed of microplastics or minuscule pieces of plastic like confetti, which is nearly impossible to clean up.
3: We recently reported that Henderson Island, in the South Pacific patch, was named the most plastic-polluted island on the planet. About 38 million pieces of plastic trash cover it. Microplastics in the ocean injure and even kill marine animals. 90% of seabirds ingest it, and over 8 million tons of new plastic trash enter the oceans each year. Meanwhile, Coca-Cola, the world's largest soft drink company, manufactured 110 billion plastic disposable bottles in 2016. Greenpeace charged that this number increased by about 1 billion bottles since last year. That amounts to 3,400 bottles a second this last year. Over the last few months, Greenpeace has been campaigning for coke to stop polluting oceans with plastic bottles. According to the Environmental Group, plastic bottles in the environment are a hazard for wildlife. Larger pieces of plastic can entangle or choke marine animals and birds. As we reported before, over time, the larger pieces break up into microplastics, which have been found in seafood, salt, and drinking water. It's been estimated that By 2050, there might be more plastic than fish in the oceans. Greenpeace says that instead of investing in more refillable and reusable bottles, Coke has increased its production of single-use plastic bottles over the last decade.
4: A recent study from Harvard University concluded that the increased atmospheric carbon dioxide from global warming will severely lower the amount of protein in staple crops like rice and wheat. The result will be a risk of stunted growth, increased susceptibility to disease, and early death in 150 million people by 2050. Other researchers have found that increased carbon dioxide will cause a decline in important minerals like iron and zinc in staple crops. Those people hardest hit will be residents of sub-Saharan Africa, where millions of people are protein deficient, and South Asia, where rice and wheat are common staples. India, for example, could lose over 5% of protein from a normal diet, placing 53 million people at risk of protein deficiency. About 76% of people globally rely on plants for their daily protein. Reducing carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels, the researchers said, is one solution to the problem.
3: The Trump administration has sounded the death knell for Pacific walruses by refusing to list them as an endangered species. The animals are facing extinction because of a loss of sea ice from climate breakdown. Walruses depend on sea ice for breeding, feeding, resting and nursing their young, and as protection from predators. Pacific walruses live in the Bering and Chukchi seas adjacent to Alaska. They are one of the world's largest marine mammals with flippers. The males can weigh as much as two tons. They eat clams, mussels, and occasionally a seal. The Arctic is heating up two times faster than the global average rate. The result is a steady loss of summer sea ice, which is putting increasing pressure on walruses. They're forced to move to land where their food options are limited, and they're more vulnerable to predators. Furthermore, young walruses can be trampled to death when large numbers of them assemble on land.
4: Tropical forests now emit more carbon than they capture, according to a study published in the journal Science in announcement Science In announcement in late September. The Woods Hole Research Center said the tropics now represented, quote, a net source of carbon to the atmosphere, end quote. The net carbon loss was greater than the annual emissions of all trucks and cars in the U.S. Widespread deforestation. Degradation and disturbance had caused forests to become a source of carbon rather than a net carbon sink. Forests play a key role in the fight against carbon emissions. Trees absorb carbon when alive and release it when they die.
3: Alessandro Baccini, Woods Hole scientist and lead author of the report, said in a statement, quote, These findings provide the world with a wake-up call on forests. If we're to keep global temperatures from rising to dangerous levels, we need to drastically reduce emissions and greatly increase forests' ability to absorb and store common carbon." End quote. Forests are the only carbon capture and storage technology we have in our grasp that are safe, proven, inexpensive, immediately available at scale, and capable of providing beneficial ripple effects. These include regulating rainfall patterns to providing indigenous communities with livelihood.
4: Along, alongside field work, the team, which included scientists from the Woods Hole and Boston University, used 12 years of satellite imagery, field measurements, and laser remote sensing technology as part of its method. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman.
3: And I'm Juliana Daly. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. Today's Eco Report feature covers the planned renovation and expansion of the Indiana Dunes Pavilion.
5: Two environmental watchdogs filed a complaint to the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation late last month. The complaint, filed by Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility or PEER and Dunes Action, states that the Indiana Department of Natural Resources and the Natural Park Service are approving inappropriate modifications to the pavilion pier in the Indiana Dunes State Park. The proposed remodel of the historic pier would include terraces, balconies, and a rooftop bar added to the Indiana Dunes State Park Pavilion. Senior Counsel for Pier Paula Dinnerstein, says appropriate steps are not being followed by the DNR and National Park Service. Our organization
6: PEER, which is Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, we work with current and former employees of the government, federal, state, and even local, who have environmental concerns about things that are going on in their jobs or in programs they formerly worked in, and we try to help them expose and address these issues. And in this case, we were contacted By a former employee of the National Park Service.
5: Norm Helmers is a retired former National Park Service employee. Helmers had a 32 year career with the National Park Service but is now part of Dunes Action. September
1: 28th, the uh, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility and our organization, Dunes Action, submitted a letter to the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation in washington dc saying that the uh, the project has not received what is called a section 106 approval
5: section 106 is a section of the national historic preservation act it states that certain requirements must be met when dealing with buildings that meet historical preservation standards like the dune state park pavilion Dunes Action and PEER sent letters to the National Advisory Council on Historic Preservation and the Indiana Historic Preservation State officer, hoping they will call for a Section 106 review. Helmer says the Dunes Action letters asks the Advisory Council for Historic Preservation to stop the modifications to the Dunes State Park Pavilion. Controversy over additional plans for further development and renovations to pavilion, including a banquet hall and a conference center, garnered over 10,000 signatures against the proposed redevelopment. Dinnerstein says she has concerns about the pavilion's redevelopment.
6: There is this proposal to renovate the old historic pavilion there and build a new conference and wedding center next to it. And the reason that the National Park Service is involved in this is that this park, which is a state park, has gotten grants from the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is a federal program to support outdoor recreation in state
5: parks. Dennis Stein says the grants obtained to develop the project went through the Federal Land and Water Conservation Fund, which requires certain environmental preservation measures to be in place in order to proceed with development. Once you get a grant from that
6: program, and this park has gotten several grants from that program, you are required to keep that park and that land for outdoor recreation purposes. You can't just turn it into a hotel or, a, you know, something that does not serve the outdoor recreating public unless they purchase equivalent land that has equivalent value for outdoor recreation somewhere else to replace the land that is converted out of outdoor recreation.
5: Peer and Dune Action say these environmental protections are not being met. Both groups are asking for the project to be halted or for the DNR to designate additional recreational land elsewhere. We have been asking all along for the National
6: Park Service to intervene and say you cannot do this unless you go through this what they call conversion process where when you're developing something that is not directed at the outdoor recreating public and you have to buy replacement land or not do it.
5: Both Pierre and Dunes Action agree that the pavilion needs to be renovated but fail to see eye to eye with the Department of Natural Resources. According to Helmer, Dune's action wants the pavilion renovated in a manner consistent to the preservation of the historical structure.
1: Uh, As a matter of fact, Dan Bortner of the Indiana DNR has said that the DNR wants to bring it back to its original condition, and we are fully in favor of that, both uh, of the exterior and the interior. It's a beautiful building, and it can once again serve the public. Sadly, the Indiana DNR has neglected this building, and it needs to get itself uh, in gear to do this project properly.
5: Helmer says Dune action did not have problems with the proposed uses of the pavilion, but says physical additions could alter the building's footprint. Helmer says the proposed expansions to the Dune State Park Pavilion could amount to a potential violation to the National Historic Preservation Act. Dinnerstein says the renovations and expansion could change the character of the pavilion.
6: The renovation of the old pavilion is adding what they call a fine dining restaurant and a rooftop bar. And there's, you know, also this proposal for this adjoining whole new conference center. And these are really not intended to serve the outdoor recreating public that's come to, you know, hike and go to the beach and so forth. They're intended to make money for the private developer that is doing this under a lease with the state park.
5: both Dunes Action and Pierce say the 90-year-old pavilion is technically eligible for the National Register for Historic Places unless the proposed changes to the footprint of the structure is approved. According to Dinnerstein, the DNR is putting in a bar, additional balconies, a dining terrace, and an elevator up to the roof, which she says would disrupt an old observation area for the public. In a press release, Dunes Action states, "Quote." The National Park admitted it had not seen any documentation about planned uses for the pavilion, but appears to have given its sign-off for the pavilion reconstruction, unquote. Dinnerstein says the renovations would turn the pavilion into a commercial facility that will preclude the function that it used to serve.
1: At one public meeting uh, a couple of years ago, John Davis, Deputy director of the Indiana DNR literally said when he was asked why there was no public input prior to there being a lease between the DNR and the developer, what John said was. If we had opened this up to the public, we never would have gotten to where we want to be.
5: Dinnerstein says Pierre received a letter from the Advisory Council on Historical Preservation that the council is going along with the DNR and the historic preservation law does not apply to the pavilion. According to the complaint filed by Pierre, quote, The National Park Service admitted in its August 9th letter to Pierre that Section 106 will be triggered when the proposal for the second phase of this project, an adjoining conference-slash-banquet center, proceeds, unquote. Helmer says the public is only now learning about the dunes pavilion plans because the plans were never released to the public. He says he only knows about the plans from a public records request.
1: This information was provided to the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, and we believe that they have reached uh, an incorrect decision based on incomplete and false information.
5: Helmer says the DNR did not ask for public input for fear of public backlash over the leasing of the pavilion to private operators in a historic building in an ecologically sensitive area, He says the law requires public input and that the DNR has so far failed to meet those requirements.
6: The Park Service informed us that they are taking the position that this new conference center will require the conversion. But they gave the go-ahead to work on the old pavilion. They said, this is not a conversion. We don't have to give any further approvals for this to go forward. And so we wrote a complaint to the Advisory Commission on Historic Preservation and said that they have failed to do what is required under historic preservation preservation law, which is to consult with the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation.
5: Helmer says in a letter sent to Dune's Action, stated that the National Advisory Council on Historic Preservation spoke with the DNR officials and were told that the project, quote, would not alter the character-defining elements significant to this historic pavilion with the exception of replacement windows and an entry canopy, unquote. Homer believes the Council on Historic Preservation has been lied to and provided incomplete information since the DNRA made no mention of plans to expand the building. He believes proposed alterations would change the building significantly and that the response from the Council on Historic Preservation has been unsatisfactory. Dune's action and Pierre plan on resubmitting their complaints. Renovations to the pavilion continue. With WFHB, I'm Alex Davis.
4: Are you an environmental activist, an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern? A concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories, as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. For more information, please email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812 323 1200.
3: And it's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of South Central Indiana. This is In Nature.
7: The morning one might hear the morning dove which is also called the turtle dove or the american morning dove or rain dove and formerly was known as the carolina pigeon or carolina turtle dove it is one of the most abundant and widespread of all north american birds it is also The leading game bird, with more than 20 million birds, up to 70 million in some years, shot annually in the U.S. both for sport and meat. Its ability to sustain its population under such pressure stems from its prolific breeding in warm areas. One pair may raise up to six broods per year. The wings can make an unusual whistling sound upon takeoff and landing. The bird is a strong flyer, capable of speeds up to 55 miles per hour. Morning doves are light gray and brown and generally muted in color. Males and females are similar in appearance. The species is generally monogamous, with two squabs, young, per brood. Both parents incubate and care for the young. The morning dove occupies a wide variety of open and semi-open habitats such as urban areas, farms, prairie, grassland, and lightly wooded areas. The Morning Dove.
4: You've been listening
6: to In This
4: week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Sarah Vaughn, Alex Davis, and Jonah Chester. Rebecca Mueller edited the script. Our engineer is Kristen Payton. Producer is Rebecca Mueller. Executive producer is Wes Martin for WFHB. I'm David Lyman,
3: and I'm Juliana Daly. Join us on Thursdays at 11:30 a.m. before Democracy Now, and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. Until then, Eco Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth.
1: Directly to the Eco Report staff.
0: The email address is
1: earth at wfhb.org.
0: That's earth at (laughs) wfhb.org.